When I started working on Universe Today reporting space and astronomy stories, there were about 1500 satellites. Now, 20 years later, there are triple that number and hundreds and hundreds more launching every year. It's estimated that eventually we will have tens of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit. Is that a bad thing? I mean, we're always hear this idea of the Kessler syndrome that Earth is going to be surrounded by this sphere of shrieking metal that will stop us from ever being able to escape planet Earth again. Is that realistic? So I had a great conversation with Morabaja, who is a space scientist and aerospace engineer, and he is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, but also has founded a company called Privateer Space that is mapping out all of the objects in space to a level of accuracy that will give us a really good sense if space junk is going to be a great big problem in the future, or if there's lots of room in the universe for our satellites, as well as what are some of the ways we can mitigate problems with astronomy and spaceflight and other issues with the space environment. So it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, here's someone who has been looking at space junk right in the eye for many years and has lots of insights. All right, enjoy the interview. So do you remember the first time that you saw like a satellite or piece of space junk, like with your own eyes? Yeah. Um, I was working as a security guard at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, standing on a nuclear missile site out in the middle of nowhere, dark, very dark sky. And I just noticed a dot of light going across the sky. And it wasn't a plane. It wasn't a meteor. And then it like disappeared in the middle of the sky. And that really freaked me out because I'm like, yeah. Well, I just couldn't think. I'm like, what could it? What could that possibly be? I thought it was a UFO or something. It's like here's this dot moving across the sky, and then it just like disappeared. When I first started reporting on this, I actually wrote an article about the number of satellites that are in space, and it was something like 1,600 satellites. It was like 15 years ago yeah, or so, yeah. and then tens of thousands of pieces of space junk, larger than a centimeter tracked by NORAD, et cetera. What is the state of the near space environment at this point? Man, so there's um, almost triple the amount of when you reported it last. And now we're tracking probably 30 to 40,000 uh, pieces, uh, you know, cell phone and larger. How are these arranged in around the Earth? Most of this stuff is in low Earth orbit, so up to an altitude of like a thousand kilometers. So that's where the bulk of the stuff is. Then there's a gap and then there's things that take about 12 hours to orbit. Those are all like global navigation satellite systems, GPS, GLONASS, that sort of stuff. Then there's another gap. And then there's this like, you know, the geosynchronous belt, things that take 24 hours to, to go around in orbit. And so those would be like the three main groupings. So let's talk about your methods for, for tracking these because you're working on a lot of ways to figure out exactly where all of these these things are. So what do you do that's that's to to pin down the location of all this junk and useful satellites? Well, yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I have my students internalize is if you want to know something, you have to measure it. And if you want to understand something, you have to predict it. So prediction is the key. Um, so what we have in terms of measurements are radars and telescopes. Like I don't own the radars. I have a couple of telescopes. Um, but those are the actual sensors, the eyes and ears 
kind of stuff to, to get the measurements. From the measurements, then we uh, basically we make some assumptions on the orbit that this thing might be in and that sort of stuff. And so we we basically start playing around with these assumptions to try to fit the evidence, the data. And once we start getting it right, meaning basically the 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 I guess the assumptions that we use once we have a model that we can infer on the, the motion, we use that predictively. And then we try to say, okay, given where we think the thing should be and where we observe it, what's the error? What's that difference? And so that is a learning opportunity to then refine our assumptions to try to basically minimize um, the errors in prediction. So that forms this kind of, you know, cycle uh, of sorts. But a lot of the data and information that we get isn't necessarily measurements, but just opinions of where things are located in space. And so we're trying to bring all these things together. And so with this, this, you know, I mean, space is big. Orbit is, you know, low Earth orbit is a fairly constrained space compared to the universe itself. Mm -hmm. How busy is the low Earth orbit environment at this point? And I know it's kind of a, it's kind of a mushy concept, but well, the thing, you know, yeah, I mean, the thing is, after this said, and then I can give you uh, a link to a public website where you can see how busy the thing is. I, I, have Have you seen it before, or have I? Have I, I, I think I, I think I've seen it. I mean, but the, I mean, the problem, of course, is that it's not necessarily like to scale, like the objects. Like you see where the things are necessarily, but but you won't necessarily see how what's the cross section of each object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you won't see the cross section of each object, but. Um, you know this link that I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna provide to you is something that we did here at uh, University of Texas at Austin, and it what it does is it gives you a um, it tells you you know amongst about twenty thousand of these objects, which ones do we predict are gonna come within uh, six miles of each other over the next twenty minutes continuously, and if so, show me. Mm. So this is so this website kind of shows a sliding window of things that are predicted to come within six miles of each other continuously over 20 minutes. And uh, green dots are pairs of objects that both are working. Yellow dots, one's working and one's dead. Red dots are both objects are junk. And it, and so when you ask me how busy it is, that shows you how busy it is. Right, in the, in the measurement column. Um, That's right. I mean, but, but like, Air particles come very close to each other, and we don't see that as being a problem. So it, it's like to get a handle, because I mean, like, there are a lot of people that are very concerned about the amount of pollution in the low Earth orbit environment. And, you know, we're all familiar with this idea of the Kessler syndrome that, that we can get to this point where everything just starts smashing into each other and we get this shrieking sphere of metal around Earth and we're trapped on this planet forever. And, and that's on the one side. And then on the other side, people are like, there's lots of space. Space is big. So, so yeah. So I'll, where do you yeah, so, fall on that? Yeah. So I think I'm not, I'm not a proponent of Kessler syndrome, but I do believe in carrying capacity of a given orbital highway. And so because we put these things on very specific places, um, I would say that the carrying capacity of a given orbital highway is saturated when our decisions and actions can no longer prevent undesirable things from happening. So the thing is, if you're, yeah, if you're operating a satellite in some given orbit, 
and you find your your time being spent maneuvering out of the way continuously from predicted crashes, that has a cost that has an impact. Um, right. You're using propellant. Exactly. So, and you're putting more objects in risk with because you're moving out of the predicted place. That's right. And so to me, yeah, I see evidence of orbital carrying capacity becoming more and more saturated because we don't holistically manage that finite resource. Everybody's making decisions in the absence of coordinating and planning those decisions with other people. And so to me, it's a recipe of tragedy in the commons. That uh, sounds so familiar. Yeah, that, that that's going to happen unless we behave differently, for sure. Yeah. And so what are the, you think the solutions to mitigating the space junk or mitigating these? Because I'm sort of envisioning like ocean vessels follow fairly set routes and they even have very specific highways in the sea that they have to take yeah. when they're going one direction or the other. Right. Is there any kind of coordination like that for space yet? There isn't. Wow. And so, so, so the thing is, um, you know, I think that there needs to be, you know, some of that, um, just like people that fly planes file flight plans and say, Hey, I'm going to be following this route. I'm going to be taken off from this airport, going to blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to be on this route plus or minus something, but I'm going to be flying the plane to this. You have independent observations that can confirm or refute the plane flying on a given route. That sort of global mechanism is what is absent from space traffic at this point. Um, the people that are owning, you know, that own and operate satellites, there's no requirement for their for them to file these flight plans to tell people where they're going to be at any given time, which is one of the things that I'm trying to change within Privateer's Wayfinder platform is get get these owner operators to say these are the orbits that I plan on on flying plus or minus something so that that can be easily accessible to any other owner operator. So they go, oh, okay, tomorrow Jimmy's going to be over here. I might want to not be at the same place at the same time or some, something like that, right? So I think that needs to happen. Uh, the other thing that needs to happen in terms of a, a solution is um, really focusing on trying to develop a circular space economy. And by that, I really mean first and foremost, prevention of more pollution by focusing on minimizing single-use satellites and rockets. So how can we make our satellites and rockets, just like we try to minimize single-use plastics, how can we make our satellites and rockets reusable and recyclable to whatever extent possible? And governments would have to incentivize that sort of stuff. And for the things that can't be reused or recycled, how do we dispose of this, these things responsibly so that they're not just abandoned and, 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 and you know, left to pollute uh, the environment? So I think that needs to happen. But I think the last thing is, uh, you know, taking a page out of, um, you know, indigenous, what some indigenous people do. I say that uh, many people say that they're into high tech and deep tech. I say I'm, in, I'm into ancient tech. And tech, the tech that I'm using is TEK, traditional ecological knowledge. And it's what pockets of indigenous people have been putting into practice over millennia. And some of the, the principles of traditional ecological knowledge is make sure that your, your, your behavior is not outpacing mother nature's 
ability to provide you feedback of the unintended consequences of your behaviors. Right now, we're mm -hmm. launching stuff, you know, do dozens of satellites per week. We're not giving Mother Nature the opportunity to inform us of the unintended consequences of our actions in space. And I think that that's just, again, another recipe for disaster. So I would, I would, you know, do a clarion call to first people around, you know, first, first nation people around the globe and say, Hey, given that you, you, you live believing that all things are interconnected and that, uh, stewardship is the way to, to thrive because we're in an existential crisis and we need to have a successful conversation with the environment. Given that your people have done that for 60,000 years successfully in very harsh environments, what recommendations would you make uh, in terms mm -hmm. of how we achieve space sustainability? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like it always seems to come down to pushing the externalities off onto someone else and be it soil loss, be it carbon emissions and be it space junk that it's going to be someone else's problem to clean up all of the of the debris right. down the road and and the more we can like we should have learned our lesson by now that 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 when we do something we have to think about all the externalities and it's more than just the cost of just firing that right because i mean people ask me like oh is there some way that we can clean up space junk. I'm like, well, you know, every piece of space junk is its own special butterfly and you have to launch a rocket to catch up to the exact trajectory. You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to bring down a bolt, right? It's crazy. It's too late. Yeah. Like that stuff is up there. Yeah. So, so I think a good way to, to, when people say, can we clean up space? I say, can we clean up the oceans? And the answer is no. Like the oceans will never be the pristine environment. They were, you know, thousands of years ago, space will never be, space will never be the pristine environment that it was in 1956 before we launched Sputnik. It won't be that. So we have to learn how to live with some dirty bath water, but we can remove some of the stuff. So that makes sense. Uh, big rocket bodies and that sort of stuff that might uh, explode and, and become many smaller pieces or eventually might, you know, fall on populated areas, school bus size crap that survive reentry and then could kill people. So we should remove those things for sure. Um, but then again, looking forward, it would be the establishment of this circular space economy where governments would incentivize companies developing reusable, recyclable satellites and rockets. Are the risks different for the altitude levels? Because, yeah. you know, the stuff that's in low Earth orbit, it's deorbiting within a couple of years, and you've got a lot of fudge factor there. The stuff that's at the much higher orbits, the geostationary satellites are the worst. But it, but I feel most nervous about, like, the Jeep, the stuff that's a few thousand kilometers overhead that's going to last for hundreds, if not thousands, of, of years. How do you think about the about the risks of the different altitude regimes? I think that a lot of people are banking on the, oh, things in Leo will re-enter kind of stuff. Um, if you're sufficiently low, then it'll take years. But look, if you're at an altitude of like 800 kilometers, you know, you could be up there for centuries already. Yeah. And so the thing is, it's like, um, uh, but if you have, you know, the rate at which things are re-entering is far less than our launch rate. 
And so that's an issue. Uh, once you start scaling that to all the licenses that people are getting from the ITU to launch and put things up there, the Chinese want to have a mega constellation. The U.S. already has half of the working satellites belong to Elon as it is already. Um, so that just doesn't scale with the let Mother Nature cleanse the system kind of thing. Right. As long as you're putting up more than is coming back down, you're on the wrong path. Exactly. Um, but it, but it, but it feels like th those different altitudes should be treated very differently. Like like it's the equivalent back to the ecological of cutting down some little tree in your backyard and cutting down a redwood. Right. That's that, right. That that one there's fudge factor. Right. It may maybe it's gonna take five years or ten years for it to reenter, but it's 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 inevitable. But those ones at the several you know as you say eight hundred kilometers and above. Yeah. They're there effectively forever, yeah. and we've got to be absolutely certain. Well, so here's the thing, right? Risk, uh, at a minimum, should be the product of likelihood of a bad thing happening and consequence if the bad thing does occur, right? And so right now we have no classification scheme or a taxonomy for human-made objects in space. To your point, CubeSats are treated the same ways as like rocket bodies. We don't, we don't see that on land between, you know, a truck carrying fuel and a Vespa scooter, they get regulated differently. On the ocean, an oil tanker is regulated differently than a kayak. In space, CubeSat and, you know, rocket body are like the same thing. That doesn't make sense. So that's something that needs to change. Do you, you know, with the launch of Starlinks and these other satellite mega constellations, astronomers are very concerned about losing access to the night sky. And it's this sort of raising friction that's coming. But it but it does feel like there can be some kind of compromise between astronomers and the mega constellations if that telemetry data is made available. So do, do you see yourself as a bit of a bridge between those communities? I love the question because the answer is absolutely. And in fact, Privateer has just signed an agreement with the International Astronomical Union has a center for dark and quiet skies. Um, so the IUCPS, and it has something called SatHub, which is specifically to help bridge and help astronomers with predicted uh, trajectories and all this other stuff. So we're already a part of that, and that's exactly what we plan on doing. I've been thinking a lot about about like low Earth orbit as as an interesting place, like the lower, the better, um, you know, some really interesting ideas like these, like air breathing ion engines. I don't know if you've seen this, but you can actually lower your altitude down so that the, the ion engine is scooping in atmospheric particles and then accelerating them. And you've essentially got unlimited propellant sunlight and air, but you have to lower your, your altitude. Do you think there's a need for high altitude stuff? Like it feels to me like, like you could start to shift things into a lower orbit to get you that better sustainability than putting the stuff up to a much higher orbit. Well, so there's a couple of things. One is um, at some point you're low enough that you have to deal with heating issues mm -hmm. due to uh, friction type stuff. Um, so you want to, so there's going to be some altitude at which, you know, the, the, the peak heating, the integrated heat is just not going to be uh, good. If you want to have a um, swarm of satellites to achieve a mission, 
the lower you go, the probably the more satellites you're going to need to achieve the same mission because you're seeing less of the planet uh, at any given time. So that is also a consideration. And then for geopolitical reasons, um, people are definitely nervous about weapons of mass destruction and missiles. And at some point, things that are this hypersonic thing that aren't quite orbital, but going high enough to, when these things start looking like missiles at a given instant, um, and you have to observe them more to rule out that being a missile threat. Right. That I never is, thought of that. That is also an issue. And so, which requires protocols and norms of behavior to basically rule out intent of, uh, you know, so in this day and age, man, I wish I could say all of humanity gets along, but clearly you know that that's utter bollocks. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So all these things are issues to what you're saying. Um, I'm, I'm sort of watching this, uh, your, your demo on the background and watching things, and I'm seeing some objects within the last 20 minutes coming within a kilometer of each other, which it's got to be. What? <laughs> I guess every now and then you see one where it's like zero and you're like, is that a crash? Well, the th so, so the thing is, yeah, so right now there's like a green dot at zero. That's like something made it to the space station. So we don't have to worry about that. And then things that are like flatliners are things that are moving fairly slow with respect to each other. The spiky stuff, those are the things that are moving at like 15 times the speed of a bullet. So if you see one of those dots, that that's a spike going towards zero. That's the thing that you really need to, to worry about. But yeah, I mean, all these things are crisscrosses and... When you think about it, you know, something coming within a kilometer of something else, the size of the objects isn't that large. So it's like, yeah, if I'm sitting in this room and something's like almost a mile away, another car that goes by, I'm, I'm not fearful sitting in my office that the car is going to hit me, right? So the, the conjunctions, the near misses are not collisions, but qualitatively, it shows you the busyness in low Earth orbit of the crisscrossings and that some of these highways, there isn't like an over ramp. Some of these highways are intersecting with each other. And so you hope, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. You hope that these things don't meet at the same place at the same time. Now, if you could just like extract all of the devices in orbit and then set up some new highways and launch everything again in a nice organized manner as the, you know, space operator in charge what do you think would be an ideal way to organize earth's satellite networks look i mean all nations want to have the benefit of space i mean humanity knows more about itself and the earth because of these robots in the sky we call satellites space provides a unique vantage point and data that we couldn't get otherwise communication all these other things Everybody, all countries deserve to have that. All countries deserve to have an inf information platform that has space-based assets, this, that, or the other. I think that if, again, and I'm going to bring it back to ancient tech, if indigenous people that maybe didn't even get along with each other but shared a common hunting ground or a common watering hole came up with mechanisms to live harmoniously, even though they didn't, agree with each other or get along in other ways because they considered it. The thing is considering it an existential threat. If people look at space and say, if we don't manage it holistically, 
it's going to result in humanity's detriment or end, uh, worst case scenario. If people believe that and behave that way, they would find a way to do the coordination and planning in such a way that leads to this harmony that you're talking about. Um, but because people don't believe that, um, then, then that lack of empathy for the reality of the problem is the biggest hurdle to overcome. But I'm sure it's it's the same. I mean, it's the same situation as someone as a fisherman going out on their boat and just kind of going, well, I know the cod are we're running out of cod, but I got to make a living. But I guess I, I'm I'm sort of wondering about like practically speaking, like if you dr sat down with a sphere of the earth and drew out a good idea for satellite orbits and everyone had to follow those orbits, if they were going to launch a satellite that would both give everyone on earth access to that amazing technology and value of satellites, but at the same time, minimize the the unintended consequences, downstream risks, collisions, etc. What do you think practically speaking is a good way to organize I mean, the yeah. Earth's I mean, satellites? I think I think you use Mother Nature as much as possible to spend the least amount of fuel. You file your flight plan and tell people where you're gonna be at what time and you stick to that. You control your satellites to that. Make yourself predictable. So if you can make Here's the thing that I always tell, there's three things that people need to do. Make, find ways to make space more transparent. Who are you? What are you trying to do? What is your intent up there? Because you don't want to appear to be a threat when you're not. Um, make space more predictable. So that's the filing the flight plan, telling people where you're going to be and promising that you're going to be controlling your satellite to follow that flight plan to the best of your abilities. And then the last one is developing a body of evidence to make yourself accountable for your behavior and providing that to people. When people basically say, "Here, here's what I intend to do, here's my flight plan, here's how I'm gonna behave, hold me accountable to that, that makes a big difference. And so to me, transparency, predictability, and accountability can be built into daily satellite operations, but it is not right now. And that is the problem. But I guess I'm just envisioning, like, if you don't care where you are, you just want to be in space, say you've got a science experiment that you're running, or you're attempting to observe the universe or whatever, then there's got to be just like a, a very useful, say, parking orbit that you just go into that gives you the advantage of the Earth's rotation and is going to keep you nicely away from everything dangerous. But then if you want a polar orbit, for example, there must be like, a way to space these satellites both vertically and horizontally so that they're not going to interact with you. So I'm just wondering, like, like just kind of like practically, if you like literally just sat down and just sketched out circles around the earth, what, what do you think it would kind of look yeah, like? So look, I mean, people have looked at this before. I'm actually on a, a PhD committee of um, this guy, Miles Lifson at MIT, who's looking at orbital slotting, answering exactly the thing that you're doing. So, Mathematically and from you know a curvature of space space-time perspective, yeah, there's a way to slot these things. If if you get rid of the uncertainty and all this other stuff, and you say number of objects, space space on like this, in these altitudes, in these shells, there's a way to mathematically and using physics, if you knew everything, to do that. Absolutely. There's a way to do the slotting. Yeah. The thing is, is that there's uncertainty in everything, and Murphy's law, things don't always work out certain ways. And there's there's a bunch of other stuff that goes along, but yes, there there are mechanisms to just design the ideal orbital slotting for this sort of thing, just like we do with airways and all this other stuff. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like as part of that process, if, if the world's space agencies can come together and agree on this mathematically perfect orbital shell, from this point forward, you go into those zones, and then we figure out how to clean up all of the outliers. I mean, you definitely have these situations where such and such satellite fails to meet orbit, reach its orbit, or it's, you know, it's off because it's upper stage didn't work properly. But you've got more room for for error on that, well, here, on that here, front. Here's, here's part, part of the problem too is equity, meaning not everybody has access to space equally. And it is a first come first served kind of stuff. So even when mm-hmm. you come up with the orbital slotting, right now, you know, the 550 kilometer altitude shell, Elon Musk pretty much owns that with the Starlink satellites. So if you want to put satellites at that altitude, well, you got to kind of coordinate with him. Uh, and he already mm-hmm. has half of all the world's operating satellites because, you know, he can do it legally. Um, so people are doing things because they legally can, even and and that means that not everybody, not all nations have the same access to orbital space. So the orbital starting is one thing, but but there's an equity aspect to this as well. And even like the the space, but also where your launch complex is. I mean, some people are lucky to to have access to be close to the equator to be able to launch rockets and other people like here in Canada, you know, you want something going to polar orbit, we got you, but, but we're not going to send something into an equatorial orbit. Sure. But then some countries that don't have equatorial stuff, they either don't care like Russia or China, or they make uh, good relationships with people in equatorial places and, you know, basically use them. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's sort of like, you can see there's sort of like two parts to it, right? There's the, there's making sure that there's room for everybody to, to be able to get access so that if you're going to want to have a communication satellite or a weather satellite or a, or a climate monitoring satellite going over your, your location, that room has got to be reserved for you when you are able to afford it or when you, when you're ready for that. And at the same time, (laughs) get launching to get into that orbit affordably yeah. is tricky as well. Right. And so some countries at the UN have been shaking their fists at, you know, I have all these slots over geo for comms that is like over my country, but other countries have their stuff there because they got there first. And, and what, yeah. you know, what, what about me? Um, yeah. They're, these are yeah. Real, real social scientific issues, my brother. Classic tragedy of the commons. And you'd think space is, you know, downright infinite. And yet, um, you know, once you get farther away from the earth, then things get a little, a little simpler. Um, I don't know. I got to tell you, my next concern is human exploration and settling on other celestial bodies. And to me, it's like very much what we saw and how uh, exploration happened over oceans and land um, and how, you know, people through colonialism it was at the detriment of other folks and that sort of stuff, and even, uh, you know, detriment to the environment. To me, the moon and Mars are going to suffer the same kind of things. I mean, there's already a bunch of trash on the moon already from our exploration. Mars is the same way. You know, heat shields broken up over the surface, parachutes flopping in the Martian wind. That's how we do exploration. We leave crap behind. Um, we need to approach that differently, man. 
it's uh, there was a paper that I read where they just took the economic growth model of, of planet Earth and just pushed it forward. And exponential growth has a way of surprising and shocking us. And I think it was like just like about three or 400 years from now, we will have essentially filled every nook and cranny of the entire solar system at our current rate of growth, if we keep this up, um, which is kind of terrifying to think about, right? Like, like, that's how you get your Dyson sphere is with with another few hundred years, just a few hundred years of exponential growth at our current rate gets us to Dyson spheres. And then a few hundred thousand years after that, we've put a Dyson sphere around every star in the entire Milky Way, you know, this only the speed of light is what's holding us back at that point, that exponential growth. So what do you think about the solar system as wilderness? I mean, there's resources there for sure. But there are also places that are, you know, would suck to have them, you know, have Vals Marineris filled with junk and cities and stuff. Well, so here's the thing. Um, I believe that, uh, you know, given that I am part of the human species, um, I would like to see the human species continue and the human species cannot continue unless it settles around another star altogether. We have to be, we have to achieve interstellar travel and exploration if humanity's exploration date uh, is going to be extended in any way, shape or form. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for that, you know, going to a place, terraforming it, whatever. I'm all for that sort of stuff, man. And because hu humanity's experience isn't just humans being someplace like people are like, oh, you know, these cities and shells and bubbles. And we didn't evolve that way. We evolved with plants, trees, bees, you know, yeah. the, the smell of dog poop on, on fresh grass. Like that's part of the human story. <laughs> that has to be part of humanity. Wherever it is that we go, those things need to actually come along with us. That's yeah, we'll challenge. go crazy. I mean, I, I, I personally don't think that we'll see giant cities on on Mars or or any of these places until we can if we can ever terraform them because they're going to suck and you're going to want to be on Earth and you're going to want to be exactly man. swimming in a river and yeah. Yeah. seeing the birds that's fly right. around you. Like there's something that's right. just absolutely primal about being a human exactly. being and being connected you to bet. this planet. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Jones, absolutely fascinating. If if people want to keep track of the work that you're doing, what's the best place to do that? Look, I think um, so right now, if people just go to like privateer.com, they can see what we're doing there. But I also have like a, a flow page, like flow.page slash Moriba. And there's a bunch of stuff about me there. And I'm going to be starting my own website, uh, Moriba.com at some point. So just kind of Keep that in the back of your mind and everything about me is going to get funneled to that at some point. So wonderful. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, and good luck with pinning down every object in in space and uh, be nice to know where, you know, how bad it's getting or if there's a way through it. So thanks for your work that you're doing. Booyah. All right, man. Brother. Much love and aloha. All right. All right. Take care. All right. You too. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com newsletter. 
You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Tim Whalen, Dave Varabioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the master of the universe level. All your support means the universe to us.